It's Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show, recorded in the heart of the Midwest, Columbia, Missouri, and broadcast each Thursday evening from 7 till 8 on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. My name is Diana Moxon. Classical music doesn't get out to the pub very often, nor for the most part does it get listened to by younger generations. And the reason for this is partly a lack of familiarity with many classical works, a sense maybe that dusty dead white Europeans are not speaking to the issues of our times, and the fact that classical chamber groups and musicians are usually behind the firewall of a pricey ticket. But my next guest this morning is setting out to change that, at least here in Colombia. Trent Rash is no stranger to speaking of the arts and has been the executive director of the Missouri Symphony Orchestra for a couple of years now. And this morning, he is here to tell us about an initiative called Preludes at the Pub. Good morning, Trent. Good morning. So tell us all about the idea behind Preludes at the Pub. Absolutely. When COVID hit last year, we, of course, were sort of stifled in terms of we had to cancel our summer music festival and we weren't really able to, to create live music. And so as we got into the fall of 2020 and, and um, people were starting to venture out some, especially in outdoor settings, we thought, hmm, how can we produce live music and at the same time help some of our local businesses that have been hurting and, and need some patrons to come. So we decided to create a program called Preludes at the Pubs. And it is a program that takes place on Tuesday evenings during happy hour. And the, the point is that people come and, and they sit in an outdoor setting or on a balcony and or a courtyard and they hear live music performances by chamber ensembles while they in, imbibe and, and enjoy the libations of wherever we are. <laughs> Well, like you say, it isn't a completely new initiative. Uh, so you did the first season at the end of last year. How was it received and supported? Yeah, it actually was very well received, especially from the business owners of that first group in the fall series of 2020. And, and honestly, we had a, a, a really great turnout of folks at each one of those events that we had. I think people were ready to hear music and to be around other people. And so it was really well received. Were people surprised that they liked it? Like, what was the feedback from the audiences about listening to music that they wouldn't ordinarily hear in that setting? Yeah, I think there were some people who 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 are, of course, our diehard fans and patrons who they, of course, it made sense to them. And then there were others that we actually had a couple when we were performing at Gunter Hans in October of last year that wandered in through the courtyard and said, we heard this harp and cello duo and 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 what is this and and then just stayed for the rest of the evening and and enjoyed hearing so yeah i think that um it, what i really enjoyed is that in some places where you were there was a, a younger group a younger demographic and it was really allowing them to see you know this kind of music can take place anywhere it just doesn't have to be on some stage in a concert hall but we can make this classical symphonic music in any location so one of the things I loved about your chats with me last year during the time of no arts was the insights you shared about the real lives of some of the dusty old white men of classical music, their foibles and quirks, their often racy and colourful lives. And it mm -hmm. honestly made me think about their music differently to recognise them as you know fully fleshed out human beings. And at that time, you were planning on making these spicy and salty stories part of a prelude series. How much is that still part of Preludes at the Pub? So we don't really have any sort of a lecture part of Preludes at the Pubs. However, I'm glad you brought that up because we are working on sort of a new venture. You know, we did this virtually, but we're, we're hoping to add some Mosey mixers to next year to some of our events where um, either myself or Dr. Ashley Pribble, my director of ed education outreach, will do pre-concert lectures. And it might not even be on the day of the concert, but we'll pick somewhere and we'll just talk about who is this composer that did this piece and what, what was their real life really like? So that will come back in that form. Mosey Mixers, that was it. I was conflating Preludes at the Pub with the Mosey Mixers. I loved the Mosey Mixers idea. It was just such a great insight into the lives of people I've never thought about as having actual lives. Right. <laughs> so you started your full season earlier this week with a horn group called the French Quarters, and that took place at Prest. Tell us who else is coming up this season and, and, and what they'll be playing. 
Yeah, absolutely. So our second one of the season on September 21st is at Logboat Brewing Company, and it features the Mazuba Quartet, which is a tuba quartet of students from the University of Missouri. They have traditionally done our, our Logboat show. We, I guess we feel like the tuba makes sense at the brewery <laughs> with some beer, and they play a variety of some classical tunes and, and some pop tunes that have been arranged for four tubas, which is a really unique ensemble. On September 28th, we will actually be at Dogmas distillery that one's a little later because they always have bingo on tuesday so it starts at 7 p.m <laughs> right after bingo we get the bingo crowd which is a fun crowd and that actually features a more uh, an ensemble people may think of more when they think of classical music which is a string quartet it features a lemay ensemble string quartet which is led by hanan lemay who actually is a member of our orchestra and a director, a music director in our conservatory. Um, and they play all over sort of the state and they do weddings. And so they're a really great gig ensemble. And then the final sort of regular preludes is on October 5th at 530, the normal time again at Gunter Hans. And I love this location because it just feels like a European courtyard and it, it's got trees and it's got the brick. And that's actually going to feature the Mizzou Brass Quintet. So that features a number of faculty from the University of Missouri, their brass faculty, and a number of them were fortunate to play with us during the year. And I'm excited to say we added a special one this fall series, and it is um, October 3rd, which is a Sunday. And it's at 4 p.m. and it is part of the Les Bourgeois Vineyards concert series. So it takes place at the A-Frame and it features two of our MSO musicians who are more regional. So they actually live in St. Louis, Graham Woodland and Michaela Telesek, and they play violin and viola, and they're going to be doing some violin and viola duets, which we hardly ever get to hear. I was out at the A-Frame a few weeks ago and there was a, maybe it was the French quarters that were there and it was just such a lovely setting to listen to classical music and look out over the river and have a bottle of wine. It was absolutely perfect. So each prelude's in a different place, as you just said. Is there a curatorial choice about which group plays where? You know, it's funny. I think that Ashley Pribble, my director of education and outreach, sort of tries to think about what ensemble, you know, what sound they make, what, what you know, their volume, what, what kind of ensemble they are, where do they make sense in terms of where they play? I do think some thought goes into that. And I never really asked her why, but I think it all depends on acoustically. Obviously, when we're outside at Logboat and that's a big yard, we need we need a sound that's going to carry. So you definitely get that with the tuba. So yeah, there is some thought that, that goes into that. But it, I think sometimes we also like to change for the sake of the musician. So if they've played at Gunter Hans, maybe next time they get to play at Prest and we try to allow them different settings as well. How much of a say does your team have in the music program each duet, quartet, quintet or ensemble plays, especially given the needs we've talked about to introduce audiences to music written by Black, Brown and women composers? Right. At this point, we have had really no say. We've allowed them the creative freedom to do what they want. Um, as this continues to evolve, it may mean, yeah, that we ask them to do some homework and see if we can bring in some music that is... Um, by people that maybe are underrepresented in our field. One of the things we do tell them, though, is that it, it is great to do a hybrid of classical and pop so people can see that, oh, this instrument can actually play. One of my favorite pieces, actually, is when the Mizzou Brass Quintet, faculty brass quintet, play Lady Gaga, and they play Bad Romance. <laughs> <laughs> I actually heard this summer in one of our lovely chamber concerts, I heard a jazz uh, ensemble that featured oboe. An English horn, which was new to me. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of people and a lot of, and that was actually a newer, um, more modern composer, living composer. And I think people are, are experimenting and, and trying out new things and um, really trying to play with the system and, and how it can be different and look different. I think it's so exciting when I see, look at a classical music program and I think, oh, that's a name that's new to me and it isn't Beethoven, Brahms or more of the same. So yeah, I think that's really important. Absolutely. As you're going out to play for new audiences, younger audiences in unusual locations that you are representing a different selection of composers for people to be surprised and delighted by. <laughs> exactly. I agree. So as you've been reaching out to younger people through all of your various programs, some of the youth-focused concerts that you had this past summer in Hot Summer Nights, what are some of the common refrains you hear about maybe their classical music reticence and how do you counter them? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, we um, any time this summer during our summer music festival that we had some young people in attendance, Dr. Ashley Pribble would walk up and say, hi, I'm so glad you're here. Why are you here? A lot of times we heard because you're playing American music. 
And so there was these two young women who, who go to Mizzou and they were like, we really like Aaron Copeland. And I was like, wow. So I think there is something to be said about, and, and of course, Aaron Copeland is, is, I wouldn't consider him a contemporary, but he, he is at least, he was in the 20th century. <laughs> so I think that to, to really connect to a, a new demographic, you know, and you, you said this a little earlier, I think it, it does mean bringing in composers that are even peers to them. There are actually composers who are, you know, in their 20s that are making wonderful chamber works or full orchestral works. And I think it's starting to celebrate those composers so people can see themselves, you know, in them. Right. And that's why I love the Mizzou New Music Initiative and, and the festival they do each summer, which brings in young composers from around the country and often from overseas to write and play new music. And it's always surprising and delightful. I don't always like it, but it stretches my ear. And I think that's a really important thing. Yeah. And there's something to be said this summer, we did a piece for brass and percussion by a living uh, Latin composer. And we were able to call him and talk to him, you know, in person. And, and as we were working on the program notes, and there's just something to be said about how rich that experience is when you can actually talk to the composer who wrote the music. Indeed. Well, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Preludes at the Pub is on Tuesday evenings for the next four weeks from 5.30 till 7 in a variety of locations, plus one afternoon performance too at Les Bourgeois. You can find out more about their upcoming calendar and other initiatives at themosey.org. And Trent Rash, thanks for the chat and I'll have a gin and tonic, please. That sounds great. Me too. Every other year, 50 professional playwrights representing all inhabited continents as well as several cultures and indigenous nations are commissioned to write five-minute plays about an aspect of the climate crisis based on a prompt by Canada-based Climate Change Theatre Action. This year, that prompt is envisioning a global Green New Deal and playwrights were asked to think about what their dream future would look like in an equitable, sustainable, decarbonised and just society. Climate Change Theatre Action first launched in 2015 and since then over 40,000 people have participated globally. This year, partner organisations around the world have been asked to organise and present an event between September the 19th and December the 18th this year, using at least one play from Climate Change Theatre Action's 2021 collection. And in Columbia, it is the University of Missouri's Theatre Department, which is partnering with the organisation with a production of 13 short plays opening next week. And managing that process and the production is actor, director and theatre doctoral student Casey Lynch. Welcome to the show, Casey. Thanks so much for having me, Diana. So there is a short trailer on the Climate Change Theatre Action website where the narrator says, imagining a beautiful, just and sustainable future can feel impossible these days. But imagining a future worth fighting for is a radical and necessary act. And I'm curious for you what light bulb moments have happened as you've been putting this show together? So I'm in the unique position to be both a director of three of the pieces in the show and the managing director. So I get to sort of see the process of my fellow grad students who are directing some of the pieces. And there has just been such positive energy in the rehearsal room um, and real learning going on by the actors who are exploring these pieces. Um, A lot of these Themes are new to to the actors, to the directors. Um, we know we all know that. Well, yeah. we all know involved in this process that there's a global climate crisis happening. But there's a lot that goes into that. And so, for me to give one example, I'm working with a student who's doing a slam poetry piece that really looks at environmental racism and their experience growing up outside of Chicago and the environmental racism that they see in their everyday life. And that working with that actor, um, their name is Gabe, Gabe Levi, is just absolutely breathtaking to really explore these themes in such powerful ways. And I'm so excited for audiences to engage in this way. I saw the environmental activist Bill McKibben speak in Missouri Theatre a few years ago. And one of the things that my takeaway was, he said, the time for changing out your light bulbs and thinking you've done your bit is over. We are so far beyond that point. And I think like many young people, I often have a nihilistic feeling about how can we possibly do enough? So how do you think working on this production and reading these 50 different viewpoints from around the world has 
changed the outlook of people who are involved with the production? What conversations have you had or heard? So I know, you know, theatre is not enough. I just want to say that to begin with. It's not the only thing we need to be doing, but it is important to understand what we could be doing and envisioning futures to actually work towards. And in my rehearsal rooms, we've been talking a lot about there's a lot of despair when you think of the state of our climate, but what? where's the hope? Where is the future? Where can we envision, like you said earlier, envision where we could go and, you know, we're all implicated in in living on this earth. So we're all a part of it, um, even if, you know, changing our, our light bulbs isn't enough and, and doing theater isn't enough. Educating ourselves and others and participating in political conversations, voting, those kinds of things, those are important. Those, those make a difference. So you and your five fellow directors get to look through 50 plays from around the world and you choose your selection. Plus, you also have three works, I believe, written by Mizzou students. So tell us a little bit about the range of subject matter in the plays that you chose. Sure. There's such a wide range. Um, it was really hard to narrow down the the 50 plays. We actually have four community pieces. We have one one is from an alumni, and then we have three students, I believe. But like I said, they're ranging from environmental justice, environmental racism, to talking about the the actual legislation of the Green New Deal, to, um, gosh, it's, it's, there's so many. There's just so many. We talk about how we treat the earth that we live on every day, taking you know a step back and recognizing it's bigger than us, that we live on this earth, that we are a part of this earth. I think a lot of the indigenous playwrights really focus on relationship to to earth, um, which I think is really, really beautiful and important and recognizing that this earth isn't ours. We share this land with each other and with nature and with so much more. It's just so much bigger than than humanity itself. So for the plays that you have that were written by the Mizzou students, what was the selection process? Did you put out a call or were they people that were involved and said, oh, I have something I'd like to contribute? Yeah, so we did put out a call this summer uh, for works and we got quite a few sent in. And, you know, we go through, we read them and we try to fit in as many as many as we can because we really value the local voices as well. I think it's important to have global and local perspectives um, to really understand our moment right now where we are on the land that we're on right now, but also what's happening in other countries. So we got some really great works looking at um one of the works I'm, I'm directing by a an alumni of our master's program, actually, Taylor Sklenar, looks at what it's like to be a refugee of a land and to love a land, but to feel like a refugee, to feel like you're being pushed out of your land because of all these climate issues that, you know, are, are displacing people from their homes. So you are directing three of the plays. You're directing The Wanderer by the Mizzou student you just mentioned, Taylor Sklenar, another one by Gabe Levi called The Birth of My Culture, and then Bedtime Story for My Future Daughter by Katie Shear-Violette, who's a national playwright. What made you choose these and want to direct these three specifically? These three pieces are all very different. I... Actually, Gabe auditioned with their piece. They came and auditioned and asked if they could read a piece that they wrote, a slam poetry piece. And we were just blown away in the audition room. And I asked them right in that moment, could we include this in in the show? And they were so excited. And that's the piece, again, that talks a little bit about environmental racism. Taylor's piece, I really love because it is poetic and has lots of metaphor, but it's really powerful and, and sobering um, and follows the story of, of one, one person talking about their experience with climate change and being a refugee of their home. And then Bedtime Stories is a little more hopeful. I actually put that at the end of the production because it is talking to, you know, future children that we'll be inheriting the work that we're trying to do now and envisioning what a nice world we could we could make for our, our future children and our, our, our future inhabitants of this earth. And there's just a, a really beautiful, hopeful tone to that piece. You bring up an interesting point there in terms of how you put the plays together, what journey you take us on emotionally. You want to end on a note of hopefulness. What kind of arc do you take us on? 
Mm. All the plays are so different. And again, some of them are poetry as well. So it's, it's a bunch of different kinds of pieces. And there's also a lot of dramatic pieces, comedic pieces. I try to, I tried to, uh, put them in strategic places so you're not getting so bogged down with despair. But there's some really, really funny, funny pieces that bring such a joy to the conversation that I try to sprinkle in throughout. Um, But, you know, it is a conversation of, you know, I put a piece, The Wanderer, right before intermission, which is a really sobering piece, followed by opening with a, a piece that's about someone who steals cows because they're worried that the cows are going to be taken away from them if we pass the Green New Deal. So that's a funny piece to start Start again, bring new energy um, and continue the conversation. For you, which is the work that is really the gut punch? Ooh, that is so hard. Um, I'm trying not to just talk about the pieces I'm directing but, <laughs> because I, those are the ones I've been working with so intimately. But there is a piece uh, being directed by... Josh Saborzade, um, written by a Mizzou student, Michael Stewart, called Herbs from, ooh, we've been just calling it Herbs because it has a long name, um, <laughs> Herbs from Mother's Botanical Garden, something, it's it's a long title, um, but I sat in on a rehearsal last night for that piece, and it is it is just really, um, it's a gorgeous piece, and it's it has moments that are hopeful, it has moments that are more bring you down to earth, to, not to be too literal, but down down to earth, uh, really ground you in what people are dealing with the, the climate crisis and what the earth is, you know, the pain the earth is seeing and feeling, um, not just, again, the humanity. Climate Change Theatre Action stresses that the action part of this initiative is absolutely critical. And they ask their collaborators to think about an educational or political or social action that they can do that can be incorporated into the event. What are you doing this year for that? So we're working with groups on campus. We are making connections right now with groups like Sustain Mizzou and climate leaders at Mizzou, CLAM for short, and some professors as well on campus to really put together a, a post-show panel uh, to talk about what we, we what we saw in the shows, not just have audiences leave thinking about them, but to actually voice some concerns and talk with people who are lobbying for climate change and are involved in things on campus and off campus like Sustain Mizzou and Climate Leaders at Mizzou. They do all kinds of initiatives throughout the year and really talking about ways to get involved and to continue to be a part of the conversation after you leave the theatre. I went to the Theatre Department's Climate Change Theatre Action production in 2019. And the thing that I remember is sitting in a building that was way too hot for the time of year. So all the (laughs) windows had to be opened as no one had access to any thermostat and lots of people had plastic bottles of water. And it just made me sad that here we were talking about the importance of radical change and we were flagrantly wasting resources and acting like it was business as usual. Do you feel like over the last two years you've seen enlightenment in the university and within the student body? I have to say I I'm I feel so positive having met with some of the, the students in Clam and in Sustain Mizzou about this project because their energy and their willingness to to do anything to to save the environment and to advocate for the university to continue working on these these issues is is so inspiring to me. Um, I do know at least in the theater department where we're trying to reuse props that, you know, we didn't buy any props for the show. We are having digital programming like you can get the program online rather than a a physical paper copy. Um, And those are just little, little things, but trying to be a little more conscious. And of course, you know, we're going to make mistakes and the university um, is trying, but we all are going to continue to make mistakes. But I think it's important that we continue to try and, and learn from each other and listen to, to what people have to say. Well, the University of Missouri Theatre Department will be presenting the Climate Change Theatre Action series of short plays from Wednesday, September the 22nd through Sunday, September the 26th at their Studio 4 Black Box Theatre on Hit Street. Evening performances are at 7.30 and Sunday's final matinee is at 2. More information can be found at theatre.missouri.edu. Casey Lynch, thanks for being the Columbia Partner for this global initiative and for taking time to chat this morning. Thank you so much for having me. 
The film arts landscape of Colombia is dominated by the international documentary juggernaut that is the True False Film Fest. But tucked away in late September, there is another much more modest film festival called Como Shorts, which invites Missouri filmmakers to screen their short films. The event is hosted by Vidwest Studios and organised by a team of people that includes Columbia filmmaker Chelsea Wright of Tiny Attic Productions, Stephen College's associate Professor of Film, Kerry Yost, University of Missouri's Assistant Professor in the School of Visual Studies, Katina Bitsikas, along with several other designers and specialists, including my next guest, the President of Vidwest, Matt Schacht, back on the show for the second time in a month. Hello, Matt. You are certainly keeping busy. Uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot to do, uh, a lot of exciting projects and a lot of good people to do them with. So let's start with the origin story of Como Shorts. What set this quirky and eclectic indie film fest in motion? Well, it was a film festival made by filmmakers for filmmakers. There's a very strong grassroots film community here in Colombia. We've got two film schools. We've got a major film festival. And so we've got a lot of people who are doing a lot of projects. And we've got a great scene. But then when you get to actually releasing your film, there's not a lot of venues or avenues for it. And I was seeing a lot of great work being done that would just go onto YouTube and disappear into the nether regions of the internet. And that was very disappointing to work really hard for projects and then to not have an audience. So that's why we made the event. We wanted an audience. So, I mean, it's very much about Missouri filmmakers. What else is out there in the landscape of short films of Midwest origin? Is it a busy market? Well, I think what you have is you've got a lot of talent in our area and you've got a shortage of film sets and film projects because the state of Missouri does not have film tax credits. Film tax credits are traditionally what would bring in big Hollywood sets from out of state to film here. So Missouri has all this talent and artists being artists, they can't, they can't not do their art. So there's always projects being made. And I, I just hate seeing good work that's just not seen. And I think that sharing your art is not just part of completing the process as an artist, but it's about supporting the next generation, about allowing them to see another artist in action, to find mentors, to be able to meet with other artists and have conversations, to to talk to regular audience members who are just curious about the filmmaking process and want to engage with it on a deeper level than what you're going to get from streaming on Netflix. So this year you have, I believe, eight films, unless you're still adding to them, that range from dental hygiene, a cleaner specializing in unattended deaths, a nanny who gets a strange proposition, a deathbed visitation, a little horror, some climate change, and an LGBTQ coming out story. What, it's a great range, what is the application and selection process for filmmakers? Well, our main requirement is that you made your film in Missouri or you're a filmmaker with a strong Missouri connection. So some of our films were made in the state. Other films were made by people who went to the University of Missouri Film School and then moved elsewhere or did their project elsewhere, but still have roots to Columbia. And uh, our aim is to make these films and filmmakers approachable. We want there to be tangible, real-life opportunities to meet these people and to continue to have the conversation that these films can be provocative you watch a film, a really good one, and you want to talk about it, right? You want to continue to, to think about the story and what better way to do that within the, the filmmaker or the crew who made it. Right. How many shorts were submitted this year and didn't quite make the cut? I'm surprised there are only eight. Well, I believe we probably had somewhere between 60 and 70. Wow. And my program director may be like facepalming right now if I got that number <laughs> completely wrong. <laughs> um. But I'm going to tell you that filmmaking is a lot of trial and error. It seems when you see a, a well-made film, that is the culmination of years and years and years of practice. Just the same way if you see a, an expert pianist at a concert who can just fly through these amazing songs, they make it look easy, but it's years and years of practice and dedication. Very few filmmakers make one film and have that be a great film. And so we get a lot of people who are practicing, who are experimenting, they're learning their voice, they're learning the tools of their trade, and their submission to the film festivals are partly about getting feedback in a very mm. binary way, like accepted or rejected. And so it's part of 
their journey as filmmakers to see, am I accepted by this festival? And, and if so, you're going to get the more nuanced feedback of actually being in a theater and having an audience watch your your content in real time. And filmmakers are very, very much in tune. Like if somebody laughs when they're supposed to laugh or they cringe when they're supposed to cringe, filmmakers love that because it means that they're successful in telling their story. So how did you choose these eight? What was it you were looking for in the, in the films? We were not particular about genre. Um, and sometimes we want to explore certain themes, but we really have to see what the selections offer us. We have a about a two-hour limit. That's about as much as an audience is going to want to sit for films. So we try to fill up uh, between 90 minutes and 120 minutes of content. And we're always looking for diversity. So we're trying to make sure that all our film aren't white men. And, and then we're looking for quality content that celebrates the local film scene. I mean, we, we don't want to just show student films where you can see people are trying, but they don't quite get it. We want to show filmmakers who have achieved something in their work. Because the, 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 real, um, the real goal here, I think, is to say, hey, filmmaking can happen here. If you are a cinematic storyteller, if this is a craft that just is in your blood and you want to do it, don't feel like you have to move to Chicago or New York or L.A. to follow your passion. This is an art that can be done here, that has an audience here. And here are some examples of some excellent works that might inspire you for your next project. Would the films in your festival vary in length from one minute and 45 seconds up to 32 and a half minutes? In terms of an industry standard, what constitutes a short? When does a short become a long? Uh, I'm not sure if there is an industry standard. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There was a time when uh, access was more limited to the tools to make films. So with fewer people making films, it's easier to set rules and boundaries about what was acceptable. Now the field is so open that you can have a minute-long short in a showcase with a 30-minute-long short, and they're both tell a story. And audiences are, are going to see more and more of that kind of lineup. Hmm. Looking through the list, you have filmmakers who have Emmy Awards. You've got Sundance Grand Jury Prize winners. You've got a film that I'm pretty sure has already been selected by a number of film festivals, not only here in the US, but also in Canada, I believe. Is the shorts film industry globally really an active film industry or is there always a push to make a feature film? Is it hard being a shorts Mm. filmmaker? Yeah, I, I think that people who make shorts, a lot of them have ambitions to make features. And that really comes down to how you make a living as a filmmaker. Uh, Typically, shorts content are not purchased. So you're probably not going to have a distributor who's going to buy your short. There are exceptions to that where short documentaries could get commissioned. You could work for the New York Times and do a a short documentary. There might be uh, certain platforms, especially with, you know, the explosion of apps on your phone that specifically deal with short content and will pay you for it. But traditionally, the model has been make a short as a filmmaker, show the world what you can do. And if you impress the right people or you are determined enough, um, you'll get an opportunity to make a feature. So it's kind of a stepping stone to making a feature film. It can be. Yeah. You have also borrowed a technique from True False, which is the secret screening mask, whereby the title and information about a film is not publicized to anyone beyond those who watch the film, because for whatever reason, the film is still under a publicity embargo. So you have one of those. Is there anything you can tell us about it? Well, we, we provide the name of the filmmaker. <laughs> and I can tell you that it was made in this town. So it's okay. locally made, mostly local crew, and it's family friendly. Okay. All right. And it's in secret because it's looking for a distributor or has a distributor or it's going to be premiered at another film festival. Can you release that information? Sure. Yeah. The, it's secret because what we'll be seeing at the showcase will actually be a rough cut of the film. Uh-huh. So you'll be seeing a film before it's been polished to its finest sheen. And the filmmaker will actually give a presentation about where their film is at and what they're seeking and what their intentions are. So it's a really unique opportunity if you're accustomed to watching films that have been completely polished. What does a film look like when it's in Genesis? 
So the festival runs for three days and you show the same films each night. So uh, there's different music, but there's the same films each night. And on night one, you do have an additional component, which I love, which is the film pitch contest. So tell us about the film pitch. Well, you know, what better way to get people excited about making films than actually launch the pre-production for a film at your festival? So uh, we invite local filmmakers with scripts for shorts to submit. We will allow up to three filmmakers to pitch their script to our audience. Whoever shows up on Thursday is the audience. The pitches are around three minutes long. And then after the pitches, we hand out tickets and the audience votes for the film that they are most excited about or that had the best pitch. And the person with the most tickets wins our prize package, which includes lots of goods and services that could be useful in the making of that of that story. And the website says scripts are still being accepted. How long is that submission window going to stay open? That'll stay open until we get three worthy scripts. So we are still looking for scripts for that if you know anyone. Okay. Three doesn't seem like many. I would have thought you would have been inundated with more. So good to know. And it is going to be on a pretty busy weekend. You are holding Coma Shorts the same weekend as Roots and Blues. Do you have a cunning reason for doing it the same weekend? I would like to say we do. <laughs> um, <laughs> we, uh, we knew we were going to do an outdoor screening. And uh, we were looking at downtown Columbia. And we were concerned that an outdoor screening on a Friday, Saturday night could have a lot of loud vehicles and, and people and, you know, with bars and concerts, especially us being stones throw away from Rose. Uh, we thought we might have some audio issues. So we thought, well, if we do it on Roots and Blues weekend, everybody's going to be at Stevens Park, which will be oh, perfect for us. Very cunning. I hadn't thought about that one, but that does sound like a good reason. So you are going to be outdoors and you do have a rain venue too. So your outdoor venue is behind Fretboard Coffee in the North Village Arts District. And then if it rains, you move the whole thing to Vidwest Studios. Is that correct? Correct. And Vidwest Studios is about a 6,000 square foot space. So we'll, we'll social distance people. Perfect. Well, Como Shorts Film Festival opens next Thursday, September the 23rd, and runs for three days with the same films showcased each night. You can check out the film lineup and get more information at comoshorts.com. Matt Schacht, president of Vidwest, director of Como Shorts, owner of Peace Frame Productions and filmmaker. Thank you so much for taking time to chat. Thank you, Diana. I am a huge fan of the intersection of art forms. These nexi are such fertile ground for the development of ideas and the telling of stories, which is why many years ago, after hearing an interview on the radio of the editor of a book called Hint Fiction, which was a compilation of super short stories of 25 words or fewer, I contacted the book's editor and I asked if he would be amenable to the Columbia Art League inviting its artists to create artworks based on the stories. Of course, he said yes, and the resulting Hint Fiction art show was so fabulous that several of the writers in the Hint Fiction book contacted me from across the country and purchased works that were in the show. But it got me thinking that we have just as many incredible writers and poets here in mid-Missouri as we have artists. And so why not create a show where our local writers and artists had the chance to interpret each other's work? And thus, the Interpretations Art Show was born. Each year, we turned the show into a book and I cannot tell you how thrilled I am that the current executive director of the Columbia Art League, my dear friend Kelsey Hammond, decided to bring the show back to life. And so my next guests this morning are Kelsey along with one of the writer-artist pairs in the new show, painter John Fennell and writer Laurie Yonker. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So Kelsey, truly my heart is full of thanks that you have resurrected <laughs> the interpretation so I know it's a lot more work than a regular show. And I'm curious what your expectations were going into it and how you feel now that it's on the gallery walls. I think I was not prepared for how much work it is, but in a good way, if that makes sense. So I, I kind of was like, yeah, it'll be writing and stuff on the wall. It's fine. <laughs> and then when I I started to go around and read the pieces. I had read them as they were coming in here and there and spot checking things and whatnot. But seeing it on the wall together, always a, a show looks strange on the floor. You know, when the stuff is like sort of leaning against the wall, waiting to go up on the hanger, you're kind of like, is this show going to work? I don't know. It seems weird. And then when it gets on the wall, 
it sits in its space and you have this interaction with this piece of visual art that you just say, oh, okay, I understand it now. Or for some reason, there's like, I'm eye level, I understand it. And so now paired with a writing, it creates this depth to the visual piece. You read the writing again, you have this back and forth between these things. So it really made the work come to life in both ways. I mean, and I suppose that's what the whole show is about. But it was really impressive, I think, is the word. I wasn't ready to be as impressed as I was. Well, explain a little bit about how the show is put together in terms of the application and the jurying process. Yeah, so we had a submission process, you know, a bunch of artists apply, and then they're juried by, this year we had two jurors, and then the writers, same thing, we had two jurors, other writers who read every piece and then selected. And then Karen and I actually, mostly Karen, paired up the initial pairings. So we put the pieces together that we thought, yes, these might work together. Um, These folks seem like they have something in common. And then we emailed everybody and said, here you go. Here's what you need to look at and respond to. So then everybody sends back their responses and then you hang the show and and you pair up the two pieces together so that you have the original visual piece with the response writing or the original written piece with the response visual artwork hanging next to each other in the gallery space. People used to ask me if the pairs were a direct swap. So the same artist and writer were working on the with each other. And I said, yes, I couldn't think any other way. Yeah. Everybody's in pairs. Every artist Correct. and writer is a kind of a paired team. So one of the restrictions I imposed on the writers was that works had to be 100 words or fewer. My reason being that people have short attention <laughs> spans. And if there was more than 100 words, they'd likely skip the reading. You have been a little more lenient than me and allowed, I believe, 150 words. What convinced you to be more word friendly, Kelsey? I would love to say there was some amazing epiphany f- for us, but I think it, we just thought it was 150 words. So we just went for it. And now we're <laughs> in some ways creating more paper space to have it fit on the wall. And that is fine. <laughs> we create problems for ourselves and then we solve them. That is what artists do. Well, one of the ideas behind the show is that we all interpret the world differently. And so to stay true to that concept, the identity of artists and writers working in their pairs is kept a secret from each other so that they don't confer, but truly interpret. So Laurie and John, both of you, I believe, are alumni of past interpretation shows. And I'm curious about how how you feel when that email arrived from me and now Kelsey, and you're about to see the work you'll be interpreting. Laurie, let's start with you and that moment of apprehension. Oh, I get excited. And when I open it up and I see how much color is included, I'm extremely glad because I'm a color person. And as a writer, it's so hard sometimes to um, describe color. So even Mark Twain probably struggled to talk about the green on the Mississippi, the, you know, the woods along the Mississippi River. And so a painter can find the color that I can't write about. And Laurie, last time you were in the show, you were just saying to me that you had a photograph and you were excited that this time you had a painter. Was it more of a challenge working with a photograph? It really was because the photograph is so explicitly real that you're afraid to move away from what you see. It was about someone making a phone call next to a bridge and, and it's hard to leave the phone call and leave the bridge to write from your heart or from your emotions or from your memory, your life. John, what about you when you get that email? What are you thinking and feeling? I've talked to many other artists who have done this before, and there's a sense of dread. (laughs) And the reason for the dread is that you think to yourself, oh my God, how am I going to paint this? Because there's usually so much in the passages that you have to say, how do I reduce this? I can't, I don't want to illustrate this. Mm -hmm. There's a tendency, I think, for some artists to be able to say, well, illustration is the only way to, to interpret this. And I think I've done this a number of times now where, like, like Lori says, I feel free enough to be able to interpret rather than illustrate. I think maybe my first couple of tries I illustrated rather than than interpreted. And so this one came a little bit faster because of that because of that reason, that background that I had. But 
some of us artists are, you know, we're very insecure people and we say, how am I going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and yet you always do. I'm glad you brought that up because I had that conversation so many times and I'd say the show is not called illustration. <laughs> the show is called interpretation. And you are completely free to do whatever you want. And I, and I think I used to write in the emails to people at the outset, you don't get to be upset by what the other person does. When you enter into the show, you enter into this with a full heart and you say, whatever comes up, is fine with me because there was an incident in the first year I did it when the artist was a little upset about how her work had been interpreted and we had to have this conversation. So for this year's show, Laurie, you submitted a prose work called Finlandia to which John responded with an artwork called Night Stars. And John, your original submission was an artwork called View from the Bridge Late Fall to which Laurie responded with a prose work entitled Canoe Trip. And um, I know you haven't yet met in person because the opening reception is tonight, Friday. But Laurie, would you read for us your work called Finlandia? And then, John, I'm going to ask you about your process of interpreting this particular work of Laurie's. Absolutely. This is inspired by Upper Michigan, where I grew up. So I tried to sound like a teenager to some degree. Uh, this is memoir, Finlandia. Toweling dry by the campfire, I watch birch trees quiver in the shadows. I leave Ruth and step across the tender grass. That was my first sauna, my first jump in the lake. Paul calls me back. Tonight, the sky will give us a big show. So the three of us pull on thick sweatshirts and lie back on the lounge chairs with our feet pointed toward the lake. I've completely forgotten my crush on our host and stare up into the vast darkness. Though I've lost track of east and west, the bright moon anchors me to the earth, and then the atmosphere disappears, and the Milky Way comes into view. It isn't long, and I see my first shooting star. There's one for me, there's one for Ruth, one for Paul. No one speaks. There's only the lapping lake and the beat of my heart. So, John, there are so many evocative tangibles in Laurie's story. Talk us through how you got from reading her work to deciding on your Night Stars work. Were there many iterations before you got to Night Stars? Well, you know, I first thought about this relationship between these three people. And it was very difficult to kind of think this out, you know, whether or not these should be figurative. Um, there's a number of ways I could have gone here, but I didn't think, again, I was bordering then on illustration. And then I sat reading it for a couple of days, really. And the more I read it, the more what I focused on was night. Mm -hmm. Yes. The night is the star of this particular passage. Um, I, I've been in this situation where you're sitting on a lake and it's nighttime, and the quiet is there, and then you just look up. You just look up and see these this dark sky and these stars, and if you're lucky, you get to see a shooting star, but it's the whole atmosphere of it. And so this is what I tried to create, and I used a realistic um, image for the one I sent in, the... Um, the landscape of across the bridge. And this one, I took some liberties and I made an abstraction. But the abstraction has some ties to reality because of the colors. There's this deep blues and these light greens that, that stand for the atmosphere and the stars. And then I put these lines through it. I think the lines suggest in some ways this fluent relationship between the three parties. At least that's what I was thinking mm. of when I, when I put it together. And Laurie, John's original work is a luminous, autumnally golden scene of fallen leaves drifting upon a creek. It seems, again, like the work is so rich in possibility. What was your artistic journey to your response prose canoe trip? Well, because I teach writing to children, 
when they're writing, I also write. So I kept thinking, well, I need to come up with something for his painting, which is vibrant, right? The yellows are the most beautiful yellows I've seen. And it seems like it's backlit from behind. And I'm thinking, well, the kids are writing. And I'm thinking, well, this has to be about me. You know, I love light and I love colors. And I'm always thinking and talking color and wearing shirts that look like his painting. So I was had to bring myself into it. I had to bring myself into it, which is, uh, again, my northern roots. I'm in a canoe. And what am I thinking and feeling in this stop the clock moment? Kelsey, are there any moments in the show that really move you? Yeah, I, I have a favorite piece of writing and a favorite photo that go together. And Jenny Carey Phillips is the artist. And then the writer is named Jordan Durham. And I haven't met her before. But yeah, I, I, I don't always understand writing in the same way that I do visuals. I'm definitely a more of a visual interpreter of, of, of ideas and things. But so those two paired together really, really got me. But I think Laurie and John's pieces are both really, really well in tuned with each other. Mm. Um, so it's really nice when you see a direct correlation, but with interpretation, you know, so it's again, not illustrating it necessarily, but you're like, yeah, okay, I see that I can totally understand where that person was coming from when they wrote this or that they put paint on ground or, or whatever the thing is that they that they were interpreting with. Well, it is always a beautifully intriguing show. The sixth edition of Interpretations will be on display at the Columbia Art League through October the 15th. And you can view it both in person, wearing a mask or online at columbiaartsleague.org. And whilst you are in either location, be sure also to check out the gorgeous works of Amy Stevenson in the South Gallery. And her works will be up through October the 2nd. Kelsey Hammond, John Fenn, and Laurie Yonker. Love your work. Thanks for the chat. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. It was a delight to be here. And that is it for another week. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, as well as on Spotify. And of course, you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to my guests today, Trent Rash from the Missouri Symphony Orchestra, Matt Schacht from Como Shorts and VidWest, Kelsey Hammond, John Fennell and Laurie Juncker from the Columbia Art League and Casey Lynch from the University of Missouri Theatre Department. Thanks as always to guitarist Yasmin Williams whose song Restless Heart opens and closes the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening on all of these Friday mornings going back for three and a half years. I will be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain, but it will be on Thursday evening from 7 till 8 p.m. Until then, stay arty, Mid-Missouri! Mm-hmm.